to Talking Beasts from NarniaWeb.com, where we explore the world of C.S. Lewis and keep a watchful eye on the latest Narnia movie news. This is Talking Beasts. Welcome back to Talking Beasts. This is Brian, also known as Glumpuddle. And I'm David, also known as Movie Aristotle. And we talk a lot on this show about the challenges of adapting uh, books into movies, but we don't talk much about the challenges of adapting stories for the stage. And who better to talk about that than Nicole Stratton, the artistic director of the Logos Theater in Taylor, South Carolina. Nicole, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm so excited. So excited to have you. Um, David and I have both seen uh, your Prince Caspian and Horse and His Boy productions at the Logos Theater. And uh, it's just so exciting to see uh, some of the lesser known Narnia books, you know, basically not The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, some of the lesser known Narnia books uh, getting the royal treatment, getting the loving attention they deserve. Something's pulling me too. It feels as if. As if we're being dragged along. Yes. Look sharp, everyone. This is magic. I can tell by the feeling. Oh, I do wish you would stop. Catch hands. All keep together. Hold tight, everyone. Yes. And whatever happens, don't let go. And the Logos Theater is located in Taylor, South Carolina, but you're going to be expanding your horizons here very soon. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Talk about the lesser known books getting attention. I tell you what, (laughs) this is exciting because... Uh, The Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. has actually discovered what we're doing down here with the Narnia books. They flew their executives down and um, even flew Steve Green, who is the owner of Hobby Lobby, who is the big um, man helping behind that museum. He has had the vision for this and has done such a fantastic job with him and his uh, whole team. And so they flew down and they saw the horse and his boy this summer and have hired us to come up for two months. We're going to be doing 40 shows up there in their theater. It's amazing to see that these Narnia productions are now getting, you know, basically a national attention. So it's really exciting. Very exciting. And we'll have more information about that, um, information about tickets and such in the description below. So Narnia Webbers, please check that out. We would love to get a lot of uh, Narnia Web representation there. Um, So that's awesome. Um, But uh, bringing Narnia to the stage, uh, well, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. (laughs) Um, So, uh, Nicole, I thought it would be interesting to hear you talk about today some of the biggest challenges you have faced uh, bringing the Chronicles of Narnia books to the stage. You've written the scripts and directed uh, Prince Caspian and The Horse and His Boy. And so I'd be very curious to hear uh, what some of the biggest challenges have been. <laughs> wow. Well, first, I thought that was such a fantastic question. I had to stop and think for a while because I was like, I think once you go through the adaptation, you kind of put, it's like labor pain. So you put all that pain behind you. And you just focus on the, on the the beauty of the show after that. But when you think through, I mean, Narnia, good night, C.S. Lewis's imagination. And I love what about C.S. Lewis. It's not just imagination for imagination's sake. All these things he puts into the book have deeper meanings. So when you're going to you know, adapt it, you've got to, first and foremost, I think, care to about the book supremely to really make sure you stay true to what he's written. And in that staying true to it, you can't kind of look past some of these important things like the first thing that popped in my mind when you asked me that question was of course the water god adapting whether you're going to put that into the adapt adaptation or not 
um, for Prince Caspian because Lion Witch in the Wardrobe, that's not my my script. So that's different when I'm actually adapting something. Prince Caspian was the first thing that I adapted from uh, the book. And, you know, I'm looking at things like I really wanted to be true, but also obviously be living in reality. You can put something down on a piece of paper of like, oh, I'm going to do this really cool idea. But then at the end of the day, you've got to actually produce that. But I try to keep that in balance in my mind because I don't want to say no to an idea simply because it's super hard. Because really, like you said, the Lewis books aren't easy. So all of it's going to be hard. Um, And so first and foremost, I think trying to stay true, but also understand I've got two audiences that are going to come. One are going to be like you guys. You guys know the books inside and out. So talk about pressure. You know, when Narnia Webb Mm -hmm. shows up, you better make sure the show is like spot on because you guys are going to know. But then you've got the other audience that don't know the show. They they aren't as familiar with the books. They don't know. So you've got to make sure they're not lost. So I would say a couple of things with Caspian was, where do I begin this? I want to not just begin where everybody thinks I'm going to begin, but I'm going to begin where I can capture your attention. Also, where I can uh, kind of give a backstory a little bit for those who don't know the story as well. So they're not lost halfway through of like, who are Telemarines and what is this thing? You know, and they're just kind of confused. So I was actually, um, you know, reading and studying it and looking at it again. And that part, you know, that those awesome lines that Azan speaks at the end before he sends the Telmarines through the sticks and he explains where they came from and their backstory. If I began with that, as you guys saw with Caspian, starting with that was a decision, a big decision. I knew it could maybe um, not upset, but kind of like jar some of the fans like of the book, like, why are we starting here? But for the stage, like you're saying, you're looking at the stage adaptation, it can't drag at the end. You've got to hit a climax. And if you've hit this great climax, the battle scene and all this stuff, and now I'm going into a backstory again, it could kind of drag Mm -hmm. the momentum of a show down. So starting it, instead of taking it as a negative of like dragging that momentum down, let's start it and make it a positive. Let's start at the beginning and just wow them, pull them into the story. Let this have a big ship scene, you know, where it's like you're starting with this great a crash has just happened. It's all this intrigue and um, I could start it like that. So that was a decision there. Same thing with Horse and His Boy. I know uh, Douglas Gresham and I went back and forth a little bit on the beginning of Horse and His Boy because he liked it, but he was worried maybe we'll reveal the babies, you know, the, the whole idea of the two twins. And I said, I totally agree with you, but if I can do this well to where I don't really let you know who they are, I don't say their names of the children, I don't I don't reveal too much information, I just give you this kind of beginning, um, I think it could work. And he ended up loving it, so I was really glad <laughs> about that. Mm-hmm. Because again, I was facing the same problem. You could get to the end and all of a sudden now you're into a whole nother story that could kind of slow the momentum down. Well, you brought up a, a great point when you are writing, you also have this uh, uh, responsibility of directing the plays later on. So are you are you thinking of both at once as you're adapting or how does that process look like when you are? Do you have other theaters in mind as you're writing the script as well? I absolutely love that question. Yeah, I have to keep both things in my mind. But I think the biggest thing for me is I actually focus more on the true being true to the book before I focus on the doability of it. If there is something in that book that is pivotal to what Lewis is trying to say, it has to be there in some way, shape or form. I can't, I can't take it away simply because it's going to be difficult or in my mind, impossible to do. 
So some of those things have actually put our artistic team, you know, in a bind, but it's really been good for us because it stretches our minds, our imaginations, because we say, look, at the end of the day, we are, we are, this is not our work. This is Lewis's work. And we want it to be what he wanted it to be. So we've got to work harder on our end to figure out how to make this happen. So you're kind of, you do have reality in your mind. I don't really like it when writers are writing things and you're like that, that's impossible. Like you've just written something on a piece of paper, but I I would say you, the process is knowing that first and foremost, what you are not going to negotiate on. I will not negotiate on the trueness being true and uh, loyal to the book. And then secondly, okay, now we also have to be practical in how we're going to do this. So right now, what's neat is some of these things that we've worked out here at the Logos Theater, I'm now having to also rework to figure out how to do them in on the stage there at World Stage Theater. You know, we're used to working in our space. So now as I work on the silver chair, I am taking into consideration it being able to go other places besides our stage. And I think that pretty soon, with the Lord's help, pretty soon the Narnia books are going to tour. I, I think this is the next step. As people are seeing the show, I think they're realizing, wow, these Narnia books done on stage, they're legit. And <laughs> the country wants to see it, you know? Certainly there is a lot of people listening to this right now who would love to see this, but don't live in Taylor, South Carolina. Exactly. So I feel like this is the next step going to DC. And I mean, the water God, yeah, I could say I'm going to explode this bridge. That was another troubleshot thing I came up to with Caspian was like, and again, I couldn't let it go because that water God being, you know, going through the bridge, that's Aslan winning the day. Like he, he is actually winning the battle at that point. So you can't just, I didn't want him to walk in and be like, Hey, we, we destroyed the bridge. And everybody's like, all right. Cause they never saw it. We want to see it. <laughs> but there again, we've produced Caspian now four different runs. So it's, we've exploded that water God, um, probably at least 60 times. So it's gotta be yeah. able to happen and come back together. Um, right. But adaptations for Horseman's Boy, I will say, okay, this is what's cool about Lewis. He is so phenomenal. Every single book, when you go into adapting it, if you will follow his clues that he's kind of the breadcrumbs he's put out for you, what what happens is what I found is each book starts taking on its own style. So like when I was following what Lewis was saying all the time about their great storytellers that, you know, they're all these he just loved talking about how they were great storytellers. So I decided with Horse and His Boy, okay, I am going to have Erebus tell the story, but as she tells the story, I want it to come to life around her. And that choice in the adaptation, I felt like was important because I could tell the story with Erebus, not having to extend the story too long and kill the timing of the show to where it, the show be, turns into a four hour show. Mm-hmm. But also I could keep your attention as an audience where you're not just hearing Erebus talking about this stuff. You're seeing it happen all around you and pull you into her world. It was sort of a story theater element to that particular scene, right? Where she's telling the story and yet stepping into the story from time to time. Is that, am I remembering correctly? Exactly. Yep. And she's running and it just, it moves and it flows. I mean, in that one section of Erebus story, I think there's 30 transitions that we're doing on the stage Mm -hmm. scenery wise to kind of just take you all through her story. But then again, now you're connected to her story and in a way you wouldn't if she was just talking about it. Yeah, and I guess in a way that's more true to the book, um, because in the book, of course, Erebus is just sitting there talking to 
uh, Shasta, Brie, and Huynh, but, but but we picture everything that she's talking about. So this is probably doing more justice to the book by actually seeing all that happen. And what's sort of funny about that scene too is that they Lewis even makes it known that the story that Erebus is telling is is more poetic and more heightened than what actually happened. And so you sort of brought that to the stage as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so one of the themes I'm kind of picking up on, so the, the challenges of bringing these books to the stage is, you know, keeping the momentum going, uh, keeping the audience immersed. Because, um, of course, in a stage play, I mean, you can see that it's fake. You can see that there is where, you know, it, it's a stage. You can see that the actors are wearing microphones. You can see the puppeteers and such. So, you know, I mean, just keeping the audience from seeing the strings. Um, that must be a huge challenge you have to be, to be mindful of, which, where, of course, if you're writing a book, not, not certainly not in the same way or maybe not to the same degree. Oh, yeah. And you're, you're creating a world when you do these stage productions. You don't have CGI. You've got to create this world just with what you've got, the physical elements. And I feel like, I mean, you look at our, our culture now, they are so quick to lose attention. Like they have to. But also, I don't like to buy into that completely because I don't I feel like what's happening in the media world right now is we're buying into the idea that everybody has to be stimulated, stimulated, stimulated all the time. But really, then you begin to create art that's just bam, 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 and it's never allowing you to have a moment to settle and to think and to ponder. Um, and so I like to try to keep the audience's attention, but also bring them so much into the world that they go with me on those pondering moments, like where I'm going to pull the momentum down, especially like in Caspian with Lucy giving that beautiful speech about like what she's seen as a vision in the future of what animals going wild, how she sees that maybe humans could someday go wild like that inside. Mm -hmm. That moment was probably one of the most important moments in the show to me. People think, what, what does that mean? No, because what Lewis is saying is prophetic. We're actually living what he was saying in that book right now where we've seen people just, you know, going into a mall and just boom, doing something crazy. Mm -hmm. And, and, and we're, we're living the thing that Lewis was warning us about. And so I want to have a moment where my audience is so involved in the story that they then begin to truly think and truly feel. I want them to feel if you've talked to young people now, they're struggling to feel, I mean, they're. They're self-harming themselves because they want to feel something. We've got an epidemic. And I feel like the Lewis books are for such a time as this. They are to, to speak into that, to show young people hope and how to feel and feel things that are going to bring you to a positive conclusion. Um, cool thing that we're added this time, which probably was my favorite aha moment in bringing Horseman's Boy back to the stage. Do you remember that scene when Aslan appears to Shasta? The last time you saw it, it's just Aslan and Shasta. This time, every single puppet we have in the show, except for the raven, shows up in that scene. Because what happens is, as Aslan begins to say, I was a lion when this happened, we actually show mm. flashbacks. Oh, and we're, ah. we have the two horses running, and then we've got him with the the other line, we've got the cat and we're like actually showing. So Shasta's there looking and we have body doubles for Shasta. So he's actually watching himself experience those moments again. Wow. Wow. That sounds, that sounds really interesting. Obviously that's such a, a incredibly memorable, really important scene from the book. Yeah. That moment, I think I was the most pleased with that moment on the remount of it this time. I was like, wow, we nailed it this time. So <laughs> more cinematic, I guess. Oh, that's awesome. Um, any uh, any other big challenges come to mind uh, bringing Narnia to the stage? Well, I mean, there's there's so many challenges with Caspian. Like, how did we do we 
actually send the telmarine and if we send the telmarine through the sticks like he's got to disappear uh we got to make reapy cheap's tail reappear we've got to oh one of the things for caspian was making more of a human connection between the nurse and caspian Mm -hmm. that was i wanted to flesh out the nurse a little bit more because here you've got it's only a couple sentences in the book but here this woman she's so influential in young caspian's life that he's willing to do all that he does because of how she's making him fall in love with the old things. And I felt like that was important. I think that is not only an important choice, but sort of a risky choice too, especially knowing that Narnia fans like us are going to come see (laughs) the production. Uh, But I, and again, I have to be, I think I've said this once before on the podcast and I have to be careful in how I say this, but when it comes to adaptation, it is the scenes where there's a departure from Lewis that make them unique and mm. also make them interesting. And so I know you had a, a a tough challenge in creating moments that are are roughly described in the book, but yet still making them feel human and making them feel natural enough to someone who knows Narnia that mm. they go along with you rather than saying, oh, that wasn't in the book. Well, I don't like it. And that was, oh, I was so grateful for that. Gresham actually told me he absolutely loved that part. And I was so glad because I know how much, how important it was to Gresham and to Lewis, their mothers, um, and how much mothers play a part in the rearing of children, whether they're going to choose the right or the wrong. And that human element of like, you know, for me, thinking about a young child, having that that person ripped away from you. I mean, the audience is now going to connect to Caspian like they've never connected to him and just like rooting for him. Like you you feel in the book, but you've got to feel that on stage. And for me playing the nurse, I got to play the nurse opposite of my son. And he was he's so young. And I remember the first time I rehearsed it with, with him, I, he's supposed to kind of forcefully say, no, no more stories. Aslan isn't real. And even even if he were, he's dead, just like my parents, you know? And he's supposed to say this line to the nurse very forcefully. And my little son, he was, I think he was seven at the time. And I said, okay, buddy, now, no, he was six. And so I was reading the lines to him and I was saying, okay, now I want you to say that strong to mommy with a lot of um, emphasis. And he just, I said, yell it out to me. And he stopped and he couldn't say it. And I said, buddy, what's wrong? And he started crying. And he said, oh. he said, mommy, I don't want to yell at you. Um, and it was like, oh, but all of the things that Caspian did is because this woman puts her life on the line. She risks everything to pour the truth into this young boy, you know, and I think that's such a great element. That's a, that's a, that's probably another great example of in the book, you read it and we can kind of fill things in for ourselves a little bit, but if it's on the stage, you don't just want a narrator to come out and say, oh, just so you know, Caspian had a nurse. We <laughs> yeah. have to actually see it. We have to actually see her. And of course, then we have to write dialogue for her. You can't just say that she was there and she said things. Exactly. So what else do you have on your list there? Any, any examples from Horse and His Boy as well? Well, Horse and His Boy, for me, the challenge was we're traveling to so many different locations so quickly. I think for me, the challenge was taking you there visually smoothly, but like keeping the momentum moving. Mm -hmm. It's so nice to partner with museum of the Bible. They, they actually care about this stuff and they see that this is something that what, what they've noticed is that we've done this at a level of excellence that is kind of, just for them, it was like, wow, they were blown away at the level mm-hmm. of excellence and they want it to continue. They want to see these books get 
you know, the royal treatment. At this point, the biggest donors we've ever had behind our Narnia shows has been $10,000. That's been the biggest thing to go, like biggest gift. And we're thankful for what comes in. But a lot of times when we have not had the money, it's caused us to have to think outside the box of how are we going to do this? Not sacrifice the excellence, but man, we're not rolling in dough here. We've got to figure out how to make it look like it's Broadway without the Broadway budget. With the Museum of the Bible coming into play, it actually makes Silver Chair a lot more doable because um, there's potential for more help to be able to get um, funding to be able to do it the way I'm seeing it in my head. And for a nonprofit ministry like ours, you know, trying to get the word out, you guys have been great in helping us try to get the word out about what's going on. But something special has been built here. And I think what they're seeing is the country and the world needs to know about it. So as you're working on the silver chair, what are some of the scenes that are are making you think, hmm, how 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 is that going to happen? You mentioned sort of the 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 end of Underland. Uh, are there any other items that you're thinking about? I think our biggest challenge is going to be the owls and flying the kids with the owls. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But we've already got owls and prototype started. I am so excited about the silver chair because of the puppetry alone. We are we are doing we're coming out of even the stuff we've done. We're taking it to another level with the puppetry. Um, another thing I'm really excited about is the beginning that I feel like the Lord helped me find. I could for the longest time I did not know where I was going to begin it. The difficulty is going to be. I mean, again, you're looking at the adaptation of when Lewis is introducing certain things works beautifully and classically for the book. It may not necessarily work that well for a stage adaptation. So when certain information is coming to you um, is going to have to be looked at. The flashback actually could become a problem when adapting it because you're hearing about Rillian. And of course, the whole story long, they're looking for Rillian, but they don't know it's Rillian until the moment with the silver chair. Exactly. So I know the BBC solved that problem by giving a certain person a mask. And so, but when you're doing that on stage, you know, a mask may not work. So how do you structure that? I'm sure is one of your challenges. They don't know, but I think allowing the audience to see and know, it actually adds a certain tension where the audience knows it's Rillian, but these characters on stage don't know. So now you've got the audience sitting in their seats going, it's Rillian, come on, come on. And then, so then when the characters finally realize it, because the what I'm what I'm doing here is going to build that kind of tension, where the audience feels like they're in on the behind the scenes, like they know something that the characters don't know, and they're dying for the characters to figure it out. So it's that Hitchcock type of suspense where mm. the audience knows, but the characters don't. The audience knows, but the character. One of the plays I've done, I didn't write it. It was a play I produced here, Radium Girls. That author did that really well, where you know that the radium is poisonous. I mean, obviously, everybody nowadays knows radium is poisonous. So as I'm doing this staging, I actually did certain things where they were drinking this, and doing it right there in front of the audience where I was building tension, where the audience is like, don't do that, don't do that, you know, because they know something. The characters don't. And I feel like that works well here. That's really interesting. It kind of speaks to more of a practical difference between a book and a play. In the book, of course, we see Rillian at the beginning. We see him in the flashback. Um, But we don't recognize him when he appears at the end because it's a book. It's a book. You didn't see him. (laughs) We're blind. That's why we don't recognize him. Um, But in a play, if you see that actor early on and then he comes back, we're going to know 
that's brilliant. And I think it's interesting that you're choosing to lean into that instead of um, trying to adjust things. You're just saying, well, you know what? The audience is going to know it's brilliant, and we're just going to embrace that and just make that part of the suspense. So I, I, I'm excited about it. We've already done some prototypes of the serpent and and different things, and we're playing around with some ideas. Uh, no pressure, but Puddleglum is my favorite character. Uh, just I saying. thought that when I heard your name <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, so that's the silver chair, which hopefully we'll see sometime in the future. But uh, before then, uh, coming up, we have The Horse and His Boy. It will be running January 20th through March 4th at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Once again, Narnie Webbers, uh, if you want to get tickets, please check out the check out the description. Uh, please check out the link in the description. Uh, would love to see a, a lot of Narnie Webbers there. Oh, you guys got to come out because, I mean, if we want to see more stuff like this, then we've got to prove to people who have, you know, kind of taken that risk to bring a huge show like this up. You know, that this is the kind of stuff that people want to see. When they see that, then they'll be able to do more and more. And I think the country wants this. And D.C. is such a great area. Like so many people can come to D.C. that maybe wouldn't be able to come to Taylor's. And I mean, the museum has built a state of the art theater on their fifth floor. It's gorgeous. It It's absolutely mm-hmm. beautiful. So they um, yeah, it, it's going to be huge. And of course, I would say to answer your question, the last thing that was on my list was the horses were our biggest challenge, making horses that uh-huh. you can ride oh, in the show. Yes. So they've got to come see it because these horses are just stopping the show. We were just up at the museum for their annual gala. And it was amazing because, you know, my husband and I walk out after we show a video about our ministry and people's faces are normal. You know, they're just listening to you talk. And then we say, but we've brought something special for you, a sneak peek of the actual horses from the horse's boy and the two horses come in on either side and i mean people's faces completely change phones are up and <laughs> you know these horses stop the show so i don't know of any other company outside of something funded by broadway that travels with shows of this magnitude so um you know i think that the lewis fans should be pretty excited and proud that the books are are being able to be done like this and this, if we can band together and really make this successful, I think that we're going to see a tour of the Horse and His Boy across the country. That would be so exciting. I would love to see that. And I know that a lot of our listeners would love to see that too. Also, I tell you this, a next step after touring is we need to build that Lewis uh, theater that's just showing Lewis year round, a theater that's designated to showing these books. Like that needs to happen. Um, so more and more people are starting to see that and get excited about it. But I mean, if you designed a theater and it was designed to show the Lewis books, I mean, you're going to see stuff that, you know, is going to blow everybody away even more. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that your listeners need to know is we're doing a huge like Narnia VIP experience on the opening weekend. So if you want to get tickets, I'd come to opening weekend we're bringing up a uh, long story, but we are one of the largest holders of Narnia movie memorabilia in the world. We have so much memorabilia from the White Witch's dress and wands to Caspian's uh, hero costumes, the horn, real stuff, the wardrobe. We're taking up there the real wardrobe from the movies. Um, so we're going to be in their beautiful uh, area up there. We're setting up all this memorabilia along with memorabilia from the world premiere that we've done here of Caspian. And we're going to have costume characters there and people can interact with them, take pictures. It's going to be, we're going to bring Narnia to DC basically. And uh, so that's the opening weekend. It'll be a really fun event. Cool. 
Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Nicole. Uh, looking forward to seeing future Narnia projects. And uh, yeah, I really hope it all works out. It's really exciting further up and further in. Yes, exactly. You guys too. I tell you what, you guys are doing a great work. Hope we see you in DC. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Talking Beasts, the Narnia podcast. Visit narniweb.com to join this community and stay up to date on the latest Narnia news. Please post a comment below or in the Talking Beasts Facebook group. Special thanks to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our Knights of Narnia web. Until next time, further up and further in. <laughs>